So let's, uh, let's think for a minute. I'd like you to think about the most exciting invitation that you ever had in your life, the most exciting invitation. For me, the most exciting invitation happened when I was in, in about a third year of Bible college. Uh, unbeknownst to Sheena, uh, her friend Debbie came over to our household and said, Alan, uh, let's go for a walk. I thought, okay. So we go for a walk, and, and Debbie says to me, now you've got to remember how low my EQ is. Like, I'm, I don't clue into anything. <laughs> so Debbie says to me, do you realize that Sheena likes you? Hmm? <laughs> this was news to me. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, we're a good friend. No, no, she likes you. Oh. <laughs> and so it was kind of an invitation, you know, to plead my case before Sheena. So, so just for a minute, just to the person inside you, just think for a minute, what's the most exciting invitation? I just maybe tell each other one. Real quick, an exciting invitation. You guys have all had boring lives. There's just silence across the clock. <laughs> One, go. One, two, three, go. My children, when I, my first was born. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Now, how about this? How about the most prestigious invitation you've ever had? An invitation to be in the most prestigious event or with prestigious people. For me, a number of years ago, a friend of mine who was kind of politically connected calls me up and said, Alan, I can get you, we're going to go, we can go to Cape Canaveral and we can be at a rocket launch. I mean, not just with the bleachers with all the plebes down there. We're talking about like right up close, you know, with the scientists. Why don't you come? I said, I can't. We've got a congregational meeting that Sunday. He said, Alan, you've got to come to this. This is a once in a lifetime thing. I said, don't you understand my theology? We've got stuff going on at the church. I'm not going to go down to Cape Canaveral to watch some rocket when we've got a congregation. But I didn't go. But it was, the, it was the most prestigious invitation that I've ever had. So sometimes we get these invitations, right? We get invitations that are exciting to us. We get the invitations that are to something prestigious or to uh, dignitaries that are beyond us that we can talk about and tell people about and all this sort of thing. Uh, but today, we're going to talk about an incredible invitation. And better yet, not only can we experience the invitation, but we can participate in the event. An event that is exciting beyond hope, if we believe it. An invitation to the most prestigious person that there is in all of history and in all creation and we can experience the answer if you say yes to that invitation today this is how James chapter 5 beginning verse 13 says listen is any of you in trouble let them pray is anyone happy you've got joyous things going on then let them sing songs of praise just like we've been doing is anyone among you sick then let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. And there's a bit of a sense of gathering around and laying on of hands. To pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah, Old Testament prophet Elijah, 
He was a human being, just like we are. That's the emphasis there. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain. And the earth produced its crops. What this passage is talking about is prayer for the body, the, the, the entirety of our being. It, what, it, what it is, listen, it, it's an invitation. It is an invitation for intercession with God and intervention with each other. To come before God and to intercede for people, to pray for people, and to intervene in each other's lives, to get involved in the, in the trouble and the difficulties, and also the joy and the celebration in each other's lives, and to worship together, and to pray together, and be a part of each other's life. So let's just kind of dig into this passage a little bit, and then let's actually do some of the stuff that God's Word invites us to do. He starts off by talking about, hey, let's, let's have prayer and songs for everything. And he sort of lists off a whole bunch of things. He says, listen, if any of you is in trouble, well, what's trouble? Let me give you a hint. The Greek word is kakapathai. Yeah, we get it from that. It's a word, it's a word that, that has this, this idea of, of suffering. If any of you are suffering for some stuff, you've got some relational stuff going on. You've got some guilty stuff going on. If any of you, you've got some hardship, you're not sure about the finances and interest rates are going up and can we make the mortgage and what about the trucking? You, you've got some hard things going. Somehow you're afflicted with something and you can't hardly want to get up in the morning because you know you're going to be in pain. If anyone's going through any kind of oppression and struggling and difficulty and hardship, if anybody of you is in the middle of kakapothai, then pray. On the other hand, for those of us who are happy, if there's got reason for thanksgiving and for celebration, then to recognize that all good things come from the Father above, it says, who bestows them upon us. And so we, we sing to him, we recognize that all these good things come from him. And this is the word song here, that's where we get the word psalms from. We sing and we celebrate. And we give praise to God in our songs. Uh, you know, guys, you know, I know... Sometimes we're scared to sing. Because you've got a terrible voice. I'll double you up for, for a terrible voice. But I don't care. Because to God, my voice is good. And to God, your voice is good. And it's the job of everybody else whose voice everyone else says is good to drown me out. So if you're a really terrible singer, your job is to try and drown out Melissa. And that's how much we put our voice and our hearts and our song. We don't be afraid because we're singing to the God of the universe. And then Melissa and those other crew that can sing, they'll drown us out. Don't be afraid. If you have good in your life and reason for thanksgiving and for celebration, then acknowledge where it comes from and sing praise and thanksgiving to our God, knowing that his ears 
hear a voice of beauty. You know, Matt Chandler, when he's talking about this passage, he just talks about the power of singing together. He reminds us of, of Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Look at what it says. It's really interesting. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom. How? How do we do that? Through psalms, same word as here, through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Do you see what they're saying? It's quite, it's quite an amazing thing. What it says is that, listen, when we sing together and we offer up these songs of praise and thanksgiving, what that does is it drives the message of Jesus deeper into our hearts, right? It goes deep in there. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. It's dwelling. It sets its roots. And when we sing, then that thanksgiving that we have, the recognition of who God is, it goes deeper into the being that we are to the very core of our being. Music and singing does that. And not only that, but it encourages each other. What is it? It, it teaches you one another. We, we challenge one another. We offer each other wisdom and teaching and admonition and encouragement and challenge in our songs. So if you've got reason for thanksgiving and you've got a terrible voice, it's not terrible to God and you sing out and you sing out to each other. And the person beside you thinks you're a terrible singer, then it's up to them to sing louder than you. And they give you the look, then you say, oh, are you singing too quietly? That's what you do. Because you shouldn't be able to hear me. You should be singing so hard. And he goes on and said, well, <laughs> how about if you're sick? How about if you, you're feeble? That's what the word means. It means to be feeble, to, to be without strength. It's not just physical strength, but maybe, maybe it's, it's mental feebleness. You can't handle the stress, or you can't think something through, or, or you've got so much going on that you can't think straight, and you can't, you can't get order in what's going on, and you just feel like, man, this, this, these decisions I've got to make, they're too, they're, they're too big for me. I can't, I can't process it. I can't, I can't do it. Maybe it's a spiritual sickness. God just seems so distant. His word just seems so dry. And the enemy's whispering lies to you about how, well, maybe you don't know Jesus after all, and you're just, you're just spiritual weak, and you just, every time a temptation comes around the corner, you, you, you fall for it again. And you just know deep inside you, and you can put on a smile from over here and stuff, but you know deep inside that you've got, you've got a spiritual illness that's going on. Maybe it's emotional distress. You're discouraged to the point of depression. You're so hurt you can hardly speak. You're so disappointed in the people around you, in yourself, and maybe even God, that you just feel like your heart is being crushed and has hardly got the strength to pump blood anymore. Is any of you sick in mind, in spirit, in body, in emotions? Then pray. The Holy Spirit inspired James, the half-brother of Jesus, to give us an invitation to take all of the experiences of our life 
to God in whatever way is appropriate. And the reason that that we're inspired to do that is because we see we have a God who is for all seasons. We have a God for the time when we're in trouble. We have a God who wants to walk with us when we are delighted and, and full of joy and happy. We have a God who wants to be with us in the midst of our feebleness and our brokenness and our giving up and our discouragement and all of these things. And we take all of our life and all of our experiences because God wants all of that brought to him. in whatever it is, whether it's a joyous package or a thing that we're ashamed of, we want to hide or whatever. God just wants to gather that whole thing of our life up to him and say, here we are, God. Here we are. And I'm in trouble and I'm sick, but sometimes I'm happy and I I just want to bring this whole thing to you because you see, what prayer and what singing is is an expression and a celebration of our relationship with the king of the universe. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Your intimate, personal relationship with the king of the universe. It's not a duty, it's not a task, it's an invitation to express and explore and be in the midst of our relationship with the God of the world through all of the seasons and experiences of our life. But here's the thing, as we experience these things, and maybe we have the courage to kind of whisper them to God or whatever, but, but, but James goes, it's not only that, it's not only, Alan, for you and God, or for you and God, the trouble and the heartache and the sickness and the celebration are also something for the body of Christ, for the church to community, to intercede for each other in that, to be involved in it. And so we've got these prayers for the body, but we also have the body for prayer, the body of Christ, the, fiend, the, the community of the saints. And we need to dig into this a little bit because there's some kind of confusing things that happen in there. And there's some verses that kind of give you hope but also can be kind of scurry. So let's, let's sort of work it out. The emphasis he has is that, hey, let's everybody pray. You know, the whole body is to pray. Pray for everybody. But if you notice there, there's a little bit of an emphasis on elders who pray and anoint. Excuse me. Now, some of you have had the experience in, in, in our fellowship of the elders coming to your home and anointing you and praying for you and because we, we do that whenever we're, whenever we're asked. But it's a bit of a strange practice, this whole thing of anointing with oil. So what's, what's it all about? Well, let's, let's kind of, let me explain for you what, the, what goes on here, okay? This, because anointing, it's not really... Uh, expressed in the New Testament all that often. It just happens a couple of times. It happens here. And in Mark 16, you've got a bit of anointing in the parable of the Good good Samaritan. But but this is it. So there are two broad categories that we need to think about when we think about what does being anointed with oil mean, right? Okay? Two main things. So the first one, let's call it kind of the practical side, okay? So two things on the practical side. Number one is there's a bit of a sense of medicinal use. Okay, so that's what's going on when the good Samaritan gets, you know, he gets anointed with him and all. It's, it's medicine in those days. And so if you read in the ancient literature, you'll see that they used to use oil for, like, for toothache, toothache relief. 
So there's this sense that, okay, there's this practical sense that there's a bit of a medicinal as well as they could understand in those times. And, and what this is a reminder to us that when we're sick, yeah, it's important to get prayer, it's important to come to the elders, it's important to all those things. It's also important to take medicine as God provides it, okay? So the elders will come and they bring medicine. I trust some of our elders to bring medicine, but not all, you know. <laughs> but as appropriate, you know, so there's this medicinal care that, that, this oil, that this oil is. Also on the practical side, it's sort of a, a, a powerful pastoral thing. There's just something different about when physicality is involved in prayer. For the person who receives it, right? I don't know if you've ever had this, but you know, people, you know, you can ask people and they pray for you and that's, and that's, and it's good and it's powerful and it's effective and it's all, it's all great. But there's something a little bit extra when you get prayed for and people lay hands on you. I don't know what it is. It's just somehow, maybe it's the connection. I don't, somehow it just experienced it a little bit different. And, and then this whole anointing, it's this, there's just more power to it. It just, it just feels, it just experientially, it's like, yeah, this is, this is a whole thing. This is, this is uh, you know, uh, hearing and it's touch and it's smell. And it just involves the whole thing. There's just something powerful about having the elders lay hands on you and anoint you with oil. It just, somehow, just experientially, it just feels a little different. And this is kind of on this practical side of things. But then there's what, then the second major category is, it's kind of like the religious or, or the spiritual side of things, if you like. And, and so what's involved there? A couple of things. Anointing with oil, it's sort of like a, a vehicle or a symbol of God's power. It represents the Holy Spirit coming and being a part of that whole situation. Right? David was anointed with oil and then the Holy Spirit comes. And so it's, this, it's God's blessing and power and the Holy Spirit. That's what it symbolizes. That's what we're doing when we anoint with oil. We're saying, listen, we're just, we're just inviting the Holy Spirit. And symbolically, we're showing that this Holy Spirit is coming. He's involved in your life and he's ministering to you if you'll allow him to. And, and God desires to bless you in the midst of this struggle. He wants to at least walk with you and give you the strength to carry on and to move through it. And that's the, that's the first sort of thing. It's, the, it's, it's a sacramental, so to speak, of the divine power and healing and blessing of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is anointing was used to set people apart. To just sort of mark them out as somebody special, as something special is about to happen. And so when the elders come and they anoint you, what, what's happening is they are saying to God, King of the universe, we set this person aside for you for special attention at this time because they've got this stuff going on in their life and it is beyond them. And it's not just, you know, life as normal carries on. And so we just, we just are setting them aside, Lord, to just fix your gaze upon them in a particular way. And may they experience that they are being set aside for the particular attention of God in this experience that they're going through, this experience of trouble, this time of sickness. We just set them aside for your attention and for our attention. So that's kind of what's going on with the, with the whole anointing with oil. Now, now you, if you read the Old Testament, 
especially, they get really worked up on the oil. They, they just pour it on. It's like, you know, how good and blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the oil running down Aaron's beard and across his clothing and stuff. Well, we don't do that anymore. I did it once. I ruined a guy's suit one time. Good news, he was healed. He really was. He says he was healed. But you know, bad news is he had to get a new suit. Now we're a little bit more conservative about this. And, you know, they'll just come and they just have a little bit of oil. They put it on the finger. In prayer. You know, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It just, it just carries all of that meaning that I just tried to explain to you on what carries on. And so that's the, the first thing about, it's a little bit different, you know, the Holy Spirit and what that's all about with anointing. Verse 15 can be tough. Experientially. Because it talks about healing and faith. Healing and faith. And the big issue we get into is sometimes when God chooses not to heal and then, and then we begin to question our faith or other people's faith or whatever the case may be. So let's, let's just think about that for a little bit. I want you to notice something that it talks about the prayer offered in faith. It does not say the prayer offered with enough faith. You know, we always have that example, you've heard it before, I know, but it's like this prayer in God, he's not like a vending machine, and we come to God because we need some healing, and we look at the vending machine, and, and it's kind of like, you know, a candy bar that'll cost you $2, but a can of pop will cost you 5 And he can heal your toothache for one little bit of faith, and heal cancer for a whole pile more of faith. It's not what it says. Jesus says, listen, if you've, if you've got the faith of a mustard seed, just that little tiny seed, where you just sort of, you, you, can't, you can't tell if it's faith or hope. You're kind of scared to call it faith because really it's like, I, I don't know. We all have, I've got that this morning, you know, I've got, I'm coming in faith that God is going to move and bring healing and do all those things, but it's like, ah, on the other hand, maybe not, maybe it won't, you know, what happens if we false promise people, disappointment, he didn't say it's much faith, he said the prayer of faith, and it's this invitation to come to God with hope and expectation that God will act. And if we don't see the result that we expect or that we hope for, it's not because there wasn't enough faith. Chances are very slim that it's because there wasn't enough faith because most of us have got the faith of a mustard seed. And we need to avoid the horrific guilt that we can sometimes feel ourselves or God help us sometimes put on other people. And say, well, there just wasn't enough faith. The prayer offered in faith. Not enough faith. Faith. And then he says, and we're going to pray this prayer in the name of the Lord. Now what's that all about? To pray in the name of the Lord. Well, there's two or three things. Number one, 
The whole thing about praying in the name of the Lord or in the name of Jesus is that it's proclaiming the power of Jesus. That's the first thing, right? It's saying, hey, Jesus is a powerful person. Jesus is God Almighty. And so, you know, when John is introduced to us this song, I speak Jesus, you know, that kind of that, that modern hymn that we sing, I speak Jesus. That's what that is. It's saying that, listen, we speak the name of Jesus in the situation because it is a powerful name because Jesus is a powerful person. Secondly, it's, it's an expression of our faith. That our faith is in Jesus. To call upon the name of Jesus and Jesus, we are trusting you to be involved in this situation, to lift this trouble, to get the person through it, or whatever it is that is best for you to happen. We are trusting you to do that. We are putting our faith in you, Jesus. And the third thing to pray in the name of Jesus is submission. Submission to his will and his authority. We pray in the name of the Lord, trusting him to do what is right, even if we think it's wrong. Because we submit to the name of Jesus, that he would have his way and his will in our circumstance. Uh, Miriam Kovalishin said this, our faith is in God, not in results. I, I said that to, to, you know, to our little preaching group as we do our prep, you know, Hockley and Scott and, and I, whatever. In this case, it was Dave, because Hockley's not preaching on vacation again. And you know, Hockley didn't like it. He said, do you really believe that? Do I, I, I don't like that. He said, our faith is in God, not in results. But, but I, I do believe that. It's, it's easy for me to put my faith in results and to say, well, you know, I'm going to pray and I've got some faith. And so this, this result over here, I'm going to get that. If I, if there's, you know, there's faith and God is a good God and so on. And she's like, she's like, no, no, that's not. Our faith is in God. That God will do what is right and God will do what is good. And God will decide whether or not he's going to intervene and turn around the normal circumstances and consequences of whatever it is that we're going through. Our faith is in God, not in results. That's what the, the name of Jesus means. And to pray in the name of Jesus, it's hard. It's hard because sometimes we're given insight as to why God says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say yes to that prayer. Sometimes he lets us know through the spirit, through circumstances, a little bit later, through the body, whatever. But honestly... I think most often he doesn't. And we just have to trust in the goodness of God and the ultimate achievement of his will because our faith is in God in the name of Jesus and we submit to him. The third thing that's kind of in there that's a little bit different is this connection between sin and confession and illness. Did you see that? So what's the deal there? Number one, notice that it says, and if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. The word if is a very, very, very important word. Because you see, very often, and especially in that days, there was this, there was this assumption almost that if, somebody's, if something's messing up in your life, it's because you've got sin in your life. 
And if you get rid of the sin in your life, then that will be cleared up. As a matter of fact, unless you get rid of the sin in your life, then God can't act, God won't heal, God won't do this until you deal with your sin. And so if you don't experience God acting, then obviously you've got some sin going on that you better fix up. No. If they have sinned, if they have sinned, don't assume that because something bad is going on in your life, because something that is, God is not acting or responding in the way that you hope, don't assume it's because of sin. On the other hand, sometimes there is a connection between sin and trouble and illness. And in that case, God offers us the solution of confessing your sins to each other. Now, there's some sense in which it means confess your sin to the person that you've wronged. You know, when I mess up to go to Sheena and to say, yeah, I should have told you ahead of time I was going to tell you that story about dating, which I did like three minutes ago, right before I stepped up on the stage. (laughs) So sometimes, you know, it means that. But it's not just that. There's power in confession. It's, it's good for the soul. Remember at the beginning of this, I said that, that James, the book of James, is, is, is fundamental to the Alcoholics Anonymous movement, and they were going to call themselves the James Club and so on. It's like step five, the confession of sin. The science is kind of catching up with the Bible on this. And let me just read you. It's a long quote, but I, I, I think it's worth... It's worth thinking through. From Dr. Uh, David Eagleman. He's a neuroscientist, teaches at Stanford. He writes books and bright boy. This is what he says. You have competing populations in your brain. One part that wants to tell something and one part that doesn't. You've got stuff going on. So he says, you should confess this. You know, and the part saying, are you kidding? No, 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 no. There's a real psychological battle going on in the brain. We experience it, right? So keeping certain behaviors secret, especially behaviors that are seen or understood to be wrong, means a continual struggle with yourself. The internal dissonance and lack of sense of personal integrity is draining. It's exhausting. It wears us out. The struggle involved in keeping a secret is stressful. This means that your brain will register the fact that there are increased levels of stress hormones going through your bloodstream as a result of this struggle to keep your secret. Your brain does not enjoy this stress. Those living duplicitous or double lives live with the stress of keeping a whole section of their life secret from the people that they see every day and they care about. The fact that their brains are marinated in stress hormones. I like that image. Because it happens to us, right? Your brain's marinating in stress hormones. Due to keeping the secrets over and above the effects of the wrongdoing themselves can cause an impairment in the person's ability to stay healthy and function well. Both mentally and physically. This is, this is what confession's all about. It's bad enough we do the wrong stuff. But we compound it when we don't confess that 
to the people close to us, to the church, to somebody who cares and somebody who loves. It, it, it compounds this. But when we will confess to one another, when we will do this in a prayerful atmosphere, then and we experience the acceptance and forgiveness of human beings, which then reminds us that God's desire and willingness and ability to forgive is so much greater than anything we could ever get from people close to us, no matter how much they love us. That experience of it drains that stress hormone and we can begin to be more healthy and experience life to the full. Well, then James, he ends off with really a a fascinating thing. He ends off by, by just sort of saying, listen, you know, you need to pray because the prayers of a righteous person, the person who's in relationship with God, that's all it means. It's powerful and it's effective. And he says, Let, just think of the example of Elijah. It's powerful prayer because we are just humans, but we have a powerful God. And he gives this example of Elijah. So 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. You might want to just quickly flip there if you want to just do that in your brain. And it's, it's really wild because, of, of, because there's several things that are going on here. James is going to talk about the power of the prayer of a righteous person. He's going to talk about pretty much everything that James, the book of James says. He's going to sum it up and he's going to show that Elijah was an ordinary person ordinary guy. How does he do that? Well, let's think through this story of Elijah, okay? So it starts off in chapter 17 of 1 Kings with Elijah confronting King Ahab and saying, hey, King Ahab, uh, the reason that there's a drought in the land for the six months is because of your sin. You are causing this drought. And then he runs off into the wilderness, that is Elijah. And what happens in Elijah? Remember that's this great story where he drinks from a brook, a brook, you know, a stream going by, and the ravens come and bring him meat which they're carrying. So I always kind of wonder what meat they bring him, you know. Anyhow, they bring him meat, and that, and that is what he eats. But then after a while, the water dries up, right? The little stream dries up because of the drought in the land. And so God says, go to the widow at Zarephath and ask for food. So he does. And he finds this widow, and she's there, and her son is there, and he says, hey, uh, how about you take some of that oil and some flour, and you cook me up, a loaf. And she says, I'll do that. But it's the last of my stuff. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one more loaf. And my son and I, we're going to eat it. And then we're going to starve to death. Because there's nothing left in the land. And Elijah says, ah, you know what? Just go ahead and do that. And, and what is, the oil never runs out. The flour never runs out. You see, this is James chapter 1, verse 27. The pure religion that God honors is to care for widows and orphans. That's, that's kind of built into the story. And, he's, and, and the people reading this, remember the Jewish people, they think back, oh yeah, this whole thing. Well, then what happens next? Ha! The son dies. And like any good mother, she blames herself. Because that's what mums do. They blame themselves. I remember Karen one time, Karen, she said, you know what the difference is? I've always remembered this. Years ago, she might not remember it, but it was just such brilliant wisdom. She said, you know the difference between men and women? I said, no, what's the difference? She says, 
If a woman, if a mom has her kid at a playground and she helps her kid and she stands up and she bumps her head on one of the bars, the woman will say, oh, how could I have been so stupid? I knew that was there. If it's the dad, he'll bang his head and he'll say, what idiot put that bar there? <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Both things are true. She said it and it's true. So, so right away, the, the mom, her, her son dies, and so, and so she says to, to Elijah, why did you do this? Why did you come here? Did you come here to remind me of my sin? Is my son dead now because of the sin in my life? Is that what's going on here? And Elijah's like, <laughs> so he goes, and he prays, and he stretches, you know, that's the whole deal, he's stretching himself over the kid's body three times, and then the kid is raised from dead. And what greater example of this passage of thinking, ah, you know, is this sin? Is it connected? Is it prayer? And, and healing comes. Great example of that. And shortly after that, a couple of years after that, he goes and he confronts the prophets of Baal and Asher. Remember that whole deal? That's the, that's the whole thing on the, on the mountain, right? You know, with the, okay, you know, you go, you build your furnace and kill a calf and you call down on your gods to bring fire. You put water over my whole thing. And God lighted on fire. Remember that whole story? But in there, what he says to the people who's want, he says to Israel, listen, you guys. If Baal is God, then you follow Baal. But if Yahweh is God, then you follow Yahweh. Make up your mind. Don't be double-minded. And that's what this whole thing about James, the whole book is about, listen, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you should be doing the things that you say you're going to be doing. Don't be double-minded. And certainly in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, don't be double-minded, right? Ask for wisdom. Choose. Believe it or don't believe it. And then, of course, the whole deal happens, you know, Baal doesn't come fire from heaven, all the prophets of Baal and Asherah are killed, this sort of thing. And then, and then Elijah prays for rain. Remember that whole deal at the end? And he, he prays seven times. He tells us, I'm going, is there a cloud yet? Is there a cloud yet? Is there a cloud yet? Says, no, 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 no. And finally the seven comes back. There's a cloud the size of a man's fist I see on the horizon. Elijah says, okay, quick, you know, because now it's going to pour with rain. And so he goes and tells, you know, get your chariots and all, all that whole kind of a deal. And, and this, is, this is this whole thing of chapter 1, verse 6, where he prayed with faith and expectation. And this passage as well. And as soon as he saw just the hint, he said, okay, this is it. I believe that that cloud, even though we haven't had rain for three and a half years, that little tiny cloud, it's going to grow into something powerful. And I'm staking my faith and my trust in the God who will turn that little sign of grace and hope into something great. Because I trust that he's going to answer my prayer. And he says, James says, see, he's a man just like you. And we're thinking, that doesn't look anything like my life, man. But I'll tell you what looks like my life is what comes next. He's experienced all of these miracles. And then Ahab, King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, hears that all her prophets have been killed. And she says, by tonight, Elijah's a dead man. And what does Elijah do? It says that Elijah was filled with fear. And Elijah ran away. 
And Elijah was so upset that he became depressed. He came depressed to the point of suicide and said, God, I just want to die. I think I just, just kill me. Just kill me. Just kill me. And he's so upset that he kind of accuses God. What did you do to me? I'm the only one left. And, you know, I've been all these different things. And boy, that can sound like me. Afraid, discouraged, ticked off at God. Wish that this situation would just end and be over with it. And James said, you see, Elijah was a man, was a human being just like you. Who even though you may have had great things happen in the past of your life, it slips from your being and we can end up running, filled with fear and rage and depression. But James is saying, he's got all that stuff in him, just like Alan, you've got that stuff in you. But his prayer was powerful. Because we're just humans, and we got all that stuff going on. And doubt creeps in and all that stuff. And God says, it's okay. Your prayers are still powerful. Because I, Yahweh, am powerful. And I take that mixed up, jumbled up heart and prayer that you've got going on. And I sift out the stuff that needs healing and I hear the purity of your desire. Because the other stuff's washed away by the blood of the Lamb. And those prayers are powerful and effective because God is powerful and effective. So that's our invitation. We've done some of the invitation. We've, we've been happy and sung awesome praise songs. But now we want to give another invitation. An invitation for the elders to pray for you and anoint you. You know, I remember years ago, remember this years ago, I don't know how it kind of stopped, but we used to go in the back for prayer and sometimes there'd be lines up or 10, 15 people or whatever, you know. Somehow it just sort of faded away. I don't, I don't really understand how that happened. But here's what we're going to do. We want to give you an invitation, okay? It's an invitation. It's not a pressure thing. It's an invitation, okay? And the invitation is to come for prayer. So, um, an anointing if you want it. And you, you can choose. You can just have prayer. You can have prayer and have hands laid on you. You can have prayer and hands laid on you and anointing. So if you, know, if you feel most comfortable with a woman, Carol, one of our elders, is going to be in this back corner over here by the communion table. If you're more comfortable with a couple, then Dale and Brenda are going to be kind of back in that storage area there. 
if you prefer and more comfortable with a man, then Frank, one of our elders, is going to be over here in the prayer garden. And if you're really desperate and about to give up, I'm going to be over in this corner over here. <laughs> if the lineups get too long. So we're going to sing a couple free songs. We're going, to, we're going to judge it, right? Melissa's going to be good for it and watch for it and, and all this sort of thing. And at any time during the next couple of songs, and we, we'll, we'll do that for as long as, as, as you know, the Spirit's calling people to be prayed for. And then after that, we'll have communion, and Karen will lead us in, in communion. So it's going to be a bit of a flow here. But I beg you, don't be afraid. And, and to that wrestling that goes in our heart, should I go, is this important enough? Will God really touch me? All those things. I appreciate those wrestlings. We all have those wrestlings. We all are people like Elijah, who one day we have great faith and say, God can do anything, and the next day we're running away. But I just invite you to take advantage of this if you want. Is that, is that clear what you do? Okay, so if you prefer a woman, Carol in the back. If you prefer a couple, Dale and Brenda. Prefer a man, Frank. If you're desperate, me. Okay? So let us, let's stand up, and I'm going to do a quick prayer, and then, and then the team will, will lead us. And then at any time, you know, you can go right away. You can wait until the crowd. The, the toughest one, of course, is the first one up there. But uh, that's okay. So let me pray, and then the team will lead us, and then, and then there's opportunity for prayer. So Lord, we, uh, we come before you because you are a powerful and an almighty God. And you're a righteous God. You're a, you're a holy God. And sometimes there's stuff that goes on in our life that, oh man, we're kind of ashamed of it. And, uh, and uh, you know, our brain is marinating in stress and hormones, and, and we need to confess that out to you and there's a power in confessing it to somebody else who who hold it in confidence and and will love us through it. And, and some of us, it has nothing to do with sin. It's we got sick, and it's a little sickness or it's a big sickness, and we know what it is or we don't know what it is. But it would be a marvelous thing just to experience your touch of healing. And, and some of us are spirit sick, heart sick, we're afraid, we're stressed, we're depressed, we're confused, we're hurting, and we're in trouble. And we just need you to come and touch us and you know, Lord, we recognize that the Apostle Paul never prayed for trouble to be gone from his people, but that you would be with, with people through it. And, and we want to pray that you'd be with people through it, but we also want to pray, God, that maybe I'm not as tough as Paul. Maybe his trouble should just go away, just be lifted. You give us this invitation. And so just Holy Spirit, you know, if it would be good for us, if it would be good for me, to just uh, yield ourselves to you, then just prompt us and touch us, God, for our healing and your glory. Through Christ, it's in his name 
His precious, powerful name, we speak Jesus. Amen.